You know, I, I I really don't know why I do this. I but I do it, and I regret it each time, and I kick myself each time I do it when I'm in the learning environment. What what is that? I argue with children. <laughs> oh yes, I've seen that. I am zero for four hundred and thirty-eight thousand. <laughs> arguing with children is is something that you're just always going to lose. Right. Yeah, you, can't, you can't argue with people who are more knowledgeable than you. Well, I figure my name's Mike, so maybe I have a little Tyson in me, but no, 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 You know, they they are persistent. They are well, my mom would say hard-headed, but you know, I've tried not to use that word. Um, you know, they they are grounded in their stance. And even after what I think is a beautiful articulation of my position, they'll be like, no, and then just walk away. And then I get upset because I'm like, how, why would this, you know, three-year-old rather play than engage in, in this discussion? So, yeah, well, I think, you know, you and I are still on that journey and I mean, I feel like I've just, you know, especially, well, I felt like I, before I left teaching to be a director, I finally felt like, oh, I know what I'm doing, you know, and it took me that long. And, and as well as to like, yeah, not get into those uh, sort of argumentative engagements, because, yeah, I hear you on that, because it's like, I'm trying to, this is a teachable moment, child. And let me prove my point for this teachable moment. And, you know, it's, I've just got that grasp on like maintaining that consistent approach that honors children's, what I think you're calling out of hardheadedness, their, their raw tenacity um, to express themselves. And they, I don't think that they know, I I I don't know. Um, I, I wonder if they are aware of a right and wrong versus like, no, this is just how I see it. And you can't tell me otherwise in that moment. And I don't know, I don't want to put a label of right and wrong on that, but you know, their lives are just always being told what to do. So, and when to do it and how to do it. And, you know, especially by the time they're two, they're like, all right, time for me to interject my voice here. Hey friends. Welcome to the all-new version of NAPCAST, a podcast co-hosted and produced by Nick and Mike, two male early childhood educators of color. What is this all about? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever uttered the words, I just want to listen and learn more? Then hey, you've come to the right place. This podcast is all about taking risks, leaning into your imagination and, well, being as curious as we are about how we can dismantle racism, sexism, and all the ism in our early learning environments. Oh, and this is also a place where we can kind of sort of just get weird with it. Together, we'll listen to insights and feedback from various educators of color working with our world's youngest citizen in direct and indirect ways. Oh, just a thought of ashes and chills down your spine. So, are you ready? Did you turn your headphones up? All right now. Good. Let's get it.
Welcome to NAPCAST, a podcast co-hosted by two male educators of color. One is on the traditional lands of the Duwamish tribe, and he is... Nick Taronis or Taronis. Pronouns are he, him. And how would you introduce yourself in your native tongue? Oh, yeah. In Payom Kawichikam, I would say, Mi Yuyam No Tong Nick Taronis Yaka. And I am Mike Brown. My pronouns are he, him. I am, uh, no, I don't have a native tongue. It's just English or French or Spanish. Depends on which part of, you know, the colonize, uh, colonizer took on our land. Yeah, colonizer tongue, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm on the traditional lands of uh, the Kamehameha tribe, which is the first people, but is now called San Diego, California. And Really, the, the reason I brought or how I started up our conversation uh, today is because the other day I had just finished my break and I walked back into the learning environment and they were all having snack and relaxing and chilling. And one of the children looked up, right? And I had been in this classroom for, for a while now. They just casually looked up and was like, you can't have long hair. You're a boy. Mm. And in my and in my head, I was like, first of all, little word, right? Little four little word that I can't say. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, excuse me. Don't tell me how I identify. You don't know me. Who are you? And in my head, I was like clapping my hands. But then I was like, you know, I got to remember, like, <laughs> Mike, there are three and you're not in New York. So, you know, let's, let's, let's calm down for a little bit. <laughs> and so I asked them, you know, well, why do you think that? And they responded, because boys are supposed to have short hair. In your book, uh, A Can of Worms, Fearless Conversations with Toddlers, where can you find that? At exchangepress.com. Or, yeah. I thought it was not work. Okay. You know what, though? I'm, I'm realizing if people type in my name and then a can of worms it pops up there you go try to support local um local black and brown libraries and businesses and not just go straight to amazon people or go straight to exchange press yeah it's not on amazon <laughs> but essentially you know in your book you know a can of worms for its conversations with toddlers you i'm paraphrasing here but you say toddlers are people that should be respected and so can you just tell me more about that? Like what over the course of your career um, has made you seen this, has, has validated this, especially as it relates to um, their ability to understand and their ability, the, the, the child's ability to understand and contribute to the discourse on gender identity? Yeah, I, I feel like, my perception of childhood has really grown over the years. And the thing that you've heard me say um, is like, you know, what we do for children, we do for everyone and that we do for humanity, essentially. And when we think about, you know, oftentimes there's the metaphor of like planting the seed and letting and nourishing it for it to grow and blah, blah, blah. Well, when we think about children in that sense, what fruits do we want them to then um, to, to blossom, right? When they do grow, is it going to be fruits of 
hatred, divisiveness? Is it going to be um, fruits that are um, acceptance and empathy and love and joy and understanding? And and so we need to make sure again that we're we're doing what we can for humanity within children at an early age. And I hate to say this, but it's, you know, we, when we look at in World War II, when um, the Hitler Youth Program was, uh, was brought up, they already knew and had the idea that like, you get them when they're young, right? And you instill those particular white supremacy values into them when they're young. And so if one side of the coin that is something that you and I are vehemently against understands that, then the other side is that we should be able to embrace the fact that children are going to be able to under, understand and converse um, about the diversiveness of, of the human experience, which is that gender is not binary. Um, well, and gender is societally you know, constructed, but gender and sex aren't binary. And um, uh, neither are the roles that we're assigned to uh, that children can talk about race and the uh, differences, differences and sameness of people. Um, they can have full-on discussions of what family structure is. They can have intelligent conversations about spirituality, life and death, and morality. Um, now, all these bigger concepts, right? We just do it at an age-appropriate way, and um, but really leaving that um, an open door for con conversation to continue happening. And and I realized this with toddlers, like when it came down to usually when it came down to like things dying, right? And and how kids would bring their They'd be like, oh, that worm died or this bee died. It's going to heaven. I'm like, oh, okay. So you have this concept that when things die, they go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, now they're obviously regurgitating language of their family's beliefs. So then if, if they're doing that, then it, to me, it's like this open door of like, well, yeah, let's talk more about it. And they're usually willing to... Um, to talk more about it. And, and so I just reflect back to years ago, probably one of the first few years in, in EC that I spent, where I heard uh, a child say, I have penis, mommy, no penis. And they acted like I froze. I was like, uh, okay, like, and the other educator in the room, they just simply confirmed. Yeah, mommy has a vagina. And it wasn't until like I read your book that I was like, oh, okay, I understand now I, I can approach um, this conversation, right, in a developmentally appropriate way, in a culturally responsive way, um, as well as validate that child and then use scientific terminology, right, and call it, it is what it is, right? Um, so why in, in your thoughts right in your words obviously why is it okay to talk about body parts with young children as they become curious yeah well i mean you know one of the things that i learned from 
from my own schooling and education and, and hearing other people is we, we refer to other parts of our body in their like typical words, right? Elbow, arm, toes, nose, head, all those things. But then when it comes down to our genitalia, then it be a lot of people just sort of freeze. And I think because there's a lot of stigma and a lot of um, societal trauma in regards to molestation, rape, um, and, and that children are a vulnerable population that often endure those traumatic experiences, that it's, it's a shock to a system to be to refer to a penis, vulva, or vagina as such, because it's like, ah, am I sounding perverted? Am I sounding this way? Am I sounding like, yeah. So there's, I think, a societal stigma there. But when we, when we, when we casually and normalize talking about, again, our nose, head, toes, arms, whatever, and we don't deviate from that, that communicates something to the child. But when we start saying you're like referring to the penis as your tinkle or your, uh, or your, your willy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying for some reason, I'm at a, at a loss of nicknames. <laughs> no, I have a ton, but that's not, that's not podcast appropriate. Yeah. But then, um, you know, and then there's, uh, and then the same for like a vagina or vulva being your woohoo or your special place and things like that. And even for like, like, like the penis being called the special place, then it becomes, they, the children realize like, wait a minute, one person is calling it this, but my family always calls it that. Like children are perceptive, you know, they, they pick up on these nuances of how we're using language, how we are around um, objects or parts of the body. And they, and they, they put two and two together and realize like, Oh, this is, there's something taboo about this. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, it's, it's important for us to just be um, accurate and truthful for what something is, because, you know, obviously a kid's doctor is going to talk about their body parts in a scientific or the regular ways of penis and vagina or vulva. And we all have to be, we all have to understand that children understand that, they, that we're conveying a difference. And so when I first like kind of thought about um, this episode, I actually thought about this back in June of 2021. And here we are, 13 months, 14 months later, actually finally sitting down talking about this. And I think this is timely because, um, you know, as we see the, the, the banning of and the restrictions of femme-identified people's bodies and reproductive rights, which also, like, males, like, we have reproductive rights as well. So, um, I just think it's wild that we're like, oh, let's roll these back. So I'm like, we're also rolling it back for ourselves. But, mm-hmm. you know, neither here nor there. Um, I just think about how how do you have these conversations or layer opportunity when children talk about um, the reproductive organs, right? How do you also then talk about topics um, such as bodily consent and privacy, et cetera? Yeah, uh, potty training. 
you know, obviously if, if you're just tuning into Napcast for the first time, um, most of my perspective and what I speak on comes from the land of toddlers. And so um, what I have noticed within toddlers that are undergoing potty training, because that was a big part of my job um, was to make sure that these children were potty trained and added diapers or pull-ups by the time they um, moved on to a, uh, a not toddler room, their three or four year old room. And, um, you know, as it's kind of back to your comment where a child would say, I have a penis and mommy doesn't, well, they're noticing that amongst their peers of who has what, right. And they, and, and when we have open bathrooms, um, the child, the child might like, like get up in another child's business and be like, Hey, what is that? And mm-hmm. let me look upon a close, let me get a closer look to see what is going on there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've had a kid point at a, at a, at a little girl and be like, what is, what happened to her penis? You know, and I'm like, oh, well, she doesn't have a penis. They have a, uh, a vulva or a vagina. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they'd be like, you know, I have a penis. You're, you do. <laughs> and then they just kind of go back and forth. Like they don't, I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yep, it's still the same. <laughs> um, just kind of confirming it. But in those moments of like, oh yeah, you're noticing that. Next time, if you want to um, take a look, you should ask so-and-so first. Hey, can I look while you're going to the bathroom? And then if they say yes, then I'd be like, now let's take, like, well, when we're going to look, let's be like three feet away. So that way you don't get peed on or whatever. But um, that is a, you know, that's consent right there. And even in um, when it came down to like rough and tumble physical play, really hearing the idea of when someone says no or stop, that that is your cue to stop. And and if the person who is saying no or stop, like they need to also follow through um, and, and, and let the other person know if they're going to continue playing or if they are just all done playing. And so these are, you know, consent happens all the time when we're amongst children and it happens in very subtle ways. And we can't, you know, even the idea of where it's um, like we see it in cartoons where one cartoon character just doesn't take no for an answer and is very persistent at pursuing um, a a desired love interest or whatever. And it's like, and then we classify it as like, oh, they're playing hard to get, right? It's like, no, maybe you should just stop and, you know, and, and take that as a hint. And, and so that begins at a young age where, um, Hey, this person told, you no. but then following up with the person that said, no, I'm like, are you serious? Or are you like, what is, mm-hmm. um, cause sometimes children can be like, no, 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 stop, stop. And then they'll want to play again. Yep. So that's where you got to introduce other words like timeout, hold on. I need a break mm-hmm. rather than like, I'm just done. And so children know and are ready to learn those nuanced concepts and ways of using language. And that's not just when it's happening in the bathroom, right. Or washing hands. It's, it's in their play. It's yeah. during transitions. It's all the time where, which you can build in that muscle memory, right. That, that development of knowledge and skills. Yeah. And then, you know, even in the elementary school age, and I think that oftentimes we hear that stereotype of like, one kid running and like 
running up and like pulling the hair of another kid to show that they like them. And then the kid who's being harassed, you know, essentially being harassed is like, hey, they keep pulling on my hair or they keep poking me or hitting me and running. And they're like, oh, they just like you. Yeah, they're flirting so, with you. Yeah, Maybe so I that terminology, but yeah. But when we convey that, then are we telling that person who's being harassed, you're supposed to accept it? Mm. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think? Well, when you just in general, right? Because we did a, a a workshop not so long ago for the Washington State Interagency uh, Council for Fatherhoods. And one of the points in which we made was around why is there also, if we're going to promote family or father-friendly services or even father-like people, because right, we're not fathers, but we have 16, well, I have 16 in my class. You have 50 in your program or whatever. Um, you're a father-like figure to all of them. Mm-hmm. So when we're, we're out in public or you know we're building up new buildings or re-ramping, our places how are we also making sure that there's like diaper baby changing stations in the males locker rooms and in um places where they change or use the bathrooms and all those different things to make sure that we're also promoting that yeah and what i said in that presentation too is a simple thing is to keep in mind like expect male involvement mm-hmm. right and part of that expecting is like, um, yeah, putting in a diaper changing station. Because when you start seeing that, then it's like, it, it's a it's a form of representation, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a, a male or a father who is who is in who is caring for their young child or um, a child they're somehow associated with by by blood or or otherwise. That like they're like, oh, there's a place for me to do this act as well. And I can take that upon myself. And so it's like, um, they might, you know, be with the person that, uh, of the opposite sex and be like, hey, yeah, I'll, um, I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's just building that expectation. Um, yeah. And for me, I heard an invitation as well, because yeah, if I saw that, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, I'm welcome, dear. Yeah. And, and this role that I am in this sort of task is welcome for me to do and participate in and to share it. And that like, um, yeah, that I can do this. It's like, uh, yeah, accessibility, right. In a different sense. So you touched about uh, on this in your previous answer around uh, what road the educator has in things of this matter, but uh, can you speak to those who might kind of be on the fence, like, oh, I'm not sure if I should talk about this or if this is the right thing to do, especially, you know, those those educators listening in from states in which they're banning the talks about gender identity, around sex, around, you know, race and all these other different things. Can you repeat that again? Like, what is what is the role of the educator in this? Yeah, what do you think the role of the educator is is, is in, in these matters and are in that's this is a tongue-tied word. Oh, okay, let's start over. <laughs> what do you think 
the role of the educator is in matters like this? Yeah, well, and it's unfortunate that though that these conversations about what children are going to experience after school um, is being taken off the table because it's, you know, you've heard me say that, like, we want children to leave school with particular academic skills, right? And so that way, when they leave school, they know how to divide and multiply and add. They know how to balance their checkbook. They know how to um, do whatever sort of academic-oriented tasks, read a sign, know what colors per, uh, convey what meaning, but we don't want them to be prepared to meet someone who is different than them, mm. right? Like, and that's what's really being taken off the table. And so I think for, if you're an educator, Again, like, and I say this in my book, like there, it's a double-edged sword and there's like two ways that I see sort of education. It's like, you can go that route of just like, yeah, we're just going to focus on numbers and letters and these things. And, but we're going to leave a big void for, for citizens, growing citizens, um, that they're going to have to figure out how to fill themselves. And often if they don't have experiences um, within school because school provides what home life usually doesn't, um, that if, then they're going to find like-minded people who, who fill that void of understanding. Right. And, and oftentimes that's not a healthy choice and, and it's not a very, it's not a representative uh, view of the reality of the world. And so, you know, we need to take we need to take it as seriously and the other side of the coin and the other side of the sword is like, or we can pursue those things and make sure that children leave socially, emotionally equipped and adequate, uh, or at least confident enough to, to have an interaction with someone who is, um, of a different, um, uh, sexual orientation or gender or, um, race or ethnicity, language, ability, um, all these things that are truths in our world. And I think educators, part of your role is to recognize what your values are and what you, um, what you agree or disagree with. That's fine. But also, this isn't about you and your feelings, right? Like you can still have those values and how you see the world, but we have to make sure we are holding on to a paradigm that is um, helping young citizens be prepared for life beyond numbers and letters. And I, and I appreciate that connection between social emotional learning and really sex education, right? Because, or just education in general, you just want to be even more simple or simplified is that what we're trying to do is also build healthy relationships with our children, right? Within themselves, with and with the, with their peers, with us as their educators and their families and the community members. And so, right, the connection that I see is we're trying to build capacity around communication skills, right? Around identifying and reporting um, when when people aren't nice, right? Or you can use if they're a little bit more developmental, you know, developmentally um 
along the spectrum, right? You can talk about assault, you can talk about harassment. Um, and, and all of that goes into just our, our underlying desire and want to be self-respected, right? To engage in, in um, respect for other people in their platonic, romantic, sexual lives, Granted, you're probably not talking about that, right? Um, but, you know, all of this is, is to say is that there are studies and things um, that, that shows that this, this, in conversations like this, reduces the rates of misogyny, right? It reduces harmful um, norms around gender and, and power and and so having these conversations is not just about sex education or uh, around gender identity, right? It's, it's a conversation around our public health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, and I think maybe what you're saying too is like, yeah, that public mental health. Mm-hmm. And that it's because, because I, I think what, we, what we're experiencing, especially these days are, um, again it's that lump under the rug right like so many things have been swept under the rug that uh where i would classify progressive thought leaders are like hey we need to deal with this lump under the rug and then there's a faction of folk that are like no just leave it it Mm -hmm. just keep it under there we don't want to reconcile with it and i wonder if some of that like unwillingness to reconcile with it is a sense of guilt right? Where it's like, oh yeah, we're, we're part of the system that sustain that, but it's easier to keep digging in and staying rooted to particular paradigms than it is to change because change is scary for people. And, mm-hmm. and when you live in a society where, especially where for better or worse, technology has amplified the, and made everybody like, if you didn't know already that humanity is so diverse that Technology is like, hey, remember how diverse we we are as a species, um, and, and and it challenges belief systems, and especially those that are very binary, and 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 when you when you're staying stuck in a rigidness, and it manifests in violence and oppression, that is a health uh, that's a mental health issue right there, mm. and and we're seeing that a lot in the United States and. Um, I forget what your initial question was, but those were my feelings to what you were, what you had said before. And so we're seeing um, in in our politics and in some of the laws that are being passed here um, in the United States is that there there's, seems to be an intentional attack against those who identify other than their sex, right? Those who um, want to undergo a transition so that they can live their true lives and be their authentic selves. And so have you ever encountered in the classroom a time where a child said, um, maybe they didn't say it, maybe they showed it in their clothing or, or whatever, right? That essentially my body is a boy, but I'm a girl, or, you know, they said I'm a boy, but they showed up in dresses each day. Yeah. Um, well, 
I've only had the one story that I alluded to in my in my book, which gave me the you know the uh, the title of a can of worms. But um, outside of that, when I was at Hilltop, like in way before you got to Hilltop, there were a handful of um, of children who were yeah that they wanted to dress opposite of their assigned gender and then they're and luckily their families embraced it you know and um what was really a uh what was kind of surprising was that they were like very um from what i remember maybe a little bit apprehensive they're like is the school going to be okay with this or how are you guys going to um approach it and of course you know hilltop is like very welcoming to that and 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 for better or worse like eager for the for those kinds of things to happen and um because i think we 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 talk about our philosophies and our principles so much at that uh, that it was like okay great now we can put it to action and so i don't know kind of borderline on like tokenizing or whatever but it um for all good intents purposes but yeah so you know we rallied around the child and family and 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 i remember those teachers of those classrooms coming around to every classroom being like hey this is what this child is being called now um this is how they want to be referred to in their pronouns so this these are the changes that you'll you'll see and how we're going to support them and then they would kind of let us know like how um how the family's handling it um and then yeah we would just proceed as usual and uh and what was also really impressive is to see the uh, their peers and their kids like being like oh okay cool like they just they just roll with it right and i think that also speaks to how those children were being brought up that it wasn't necessarily um like a void or things have to be a certain way but more of like you just accept people for who they say they are mm-hmm. and 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 again, like letting their actions and characteristics like speak the volumes. Uh, and then the incident for within my book was just with um, the young girl uh, asking about if a worm has a penis. And I said, you know, and then we looked and didn't really see one. <laughs> and then um, and later on, she's like, oh, maybe my penis is inside of me. And so trying to make sense of like, oh, do do I, or do people have other genitalia inside of them? Mm. And then it became that more of a, a, a self scrutiny of like, am I making sure that I'm representing or trying to represent my understanding of uh, beyond a binary sense of the world and making sure I reflect that to the child authentically and also own where uh, I might've, or my my own misstep of using binary language. I mean, don't give away all your book. We do want people to still buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you when you said that around the in the past, where people were bringing around that child and just reintroducing them and, and how they now identified, right before I left Hilltop, um, and surprise, in case anyone didn't hear our last episode, yeah, uh, go back and listen to our last episode called Preschool Graduation and Life Transitions. And um, 
you hear that little nugget of how I moved on um, and how this NAPCAS is now transformed um, and what, what it will look like moving forward. But anyways, I digress. We had a, we had a, a child who came in one day and was like, you know what? not a girl anymore i'm non-binary i'm as free as the wind and then my spirit is free and everyone was just like whoa at first right and then you know of course we 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 misgendered you know a couple of times moving forward but then you kind of just kind of get used to it and you just go along it is what it is like this is what they want to identify as and we're still gonna love them like that's not gonna change and I think because we just normalize that and, and normalize who this individual is and continue to validate them, I think the other children caught on. And right, these are nine-year-olds at this point, right? This was in our after-school program. And um, we just kind of kept rolling. And I think adults make more of a bigger fuss than anything. Right. And yeah, I think a lot of that is because of like, what early experiences are you having? Right. And like, and for the most part, again, like bringing it back to um, a lens of looking at it through like academics, like your basic academics. I did not have a very strong early upbringing with math and I'm not from a family of mathematicians. So that wasn't genetically in me. Um, but I, and then pair that with the lack of early exposure. So math was hard for me as an adult and, 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 you know, difficult math is still hard for me. Um, I mean, I didn't learn fractions until like I was in my late twenties, but that was something that a lot of kids in, uh, in high school and middle school already had a big con- uh, grasp on it. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm just going to look at your sheet of paper and write the same thing down. (laughs) And like, um, and so it was, you know, I, 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 I mentioned all that because it's about early exposure, early experiences, right? Like, what are you being brought up with? Are you being brought up with the concept of like openness and like, it's okay to not have a definitive answer about something, or are you brought up in a very regimented, this is how life is, if life deviates away from it, then it's wrong Mm. and it's not the natural order, quote unquote, or even, you know, it goes against our religious view kind of thing. And you know what, as you were saying that, I was just like, wow, there's so many inequities and other things in which we need to like support children's learning in. And then for a second, that's what I was thinking. I was like, you know what? And we don't need to have this feeling of having to cram everything into our curriculum in order to make sure that we check every single box right i think when you get to that to that essence of what you were talking about how are we just teaching openness and acceptance mm-hmm. right it doesn't matter what they get exposed to later on in the world right yeah. they're going to come in and be like oh cool yeah. that's a way of life you're um back to our maybe it was a, um i forget what podcast but it basically like what I mentioned about emptying your cup. Are we teaching kids to empty their cup? You know, are we teaching them again to be open to like be receptive to new experiences and new um, uh, information that is different from your family culture in life? You know, and because I I would assume 
that that also opens up an openness to learning um, academics that may may not be your strong suit right off the bat. We'll be right back. These last few months have brought upon a lot of changes in Nick's and Mike's lives. New cities, new jobs, new adventures, us going independent. Shout out to all the peeps who supported us along the way. And now we have a new email address. You can email us at napcast206 at gmail.com for all your NAPCAST questions, ideas, and thoughts. And while our new website isn't quite up and running yet, you can still find us where you listen to all your music and podcasts. Spotify, Apple Music, Google, and so much more. So what should we chat about next? You tell us. And as always, thank you for listening. So I want to go back to your um, the story that you started off with of, uh, you know, you, you, you and your, your beautiful long hair and being challenged on it. How did that like convo eventually like snowball and unfold? Yeah. So naturally, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I became defensive. Right. Because I hate being told what to do or, or how to be. Right. And uh, I think just because I've went through enough exercises of a telling people to stop being so defensive. Right. Uh, I, I try to take that on myself and go and just pause and go, wait, what's actually coming up for me right now? What am I actually sitting with? And so I responded by just throwing that question back out to the group who, you know, by this time, they were all chanting, you can't have long hair and be able, right? Um, and, and I asked them, well, what makes someone a boy? And they all gave their all sorts of different answers, such as, oh, only, only girls wear dresses, which I was like, that's not the question I was asking, but okay, right? <laughs> And then they were like, oh, well, boys need to have haircuts. And boys can't like the color pink. And if you know me, I love the color pink. Um, me too. It looks good on our skin. Yeah. Ooh, black don't crack and native doesn't either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's our new trademark. Um, and so that's when I just decided, you know, maybe this is opportunity because um, once again, you, we're always talking about how educators are always seeking those teachable moments. Um, but rather than try to manufacture one, this one just kind of fell into my lap. And so I had an opportunity to really just share part of my culture of why I had long hair and why that's important and why it's in lock form, right? Because I have dreadlocks. And then really, rather than trying to convince them like, oh, you have to see it my way, Right? I just kind of let them simmer on that for a while. And by letting them simmer, I mostly just ran out of the room right before they can ask any more questions. And so you know, I'm sitting outside the room, just kind of listening in. And I heard the other educator in the room kind of went on and talk about, well, how do you think that might 
make Mike feel if you tell him he can do this or he can't wear that? And, you know, they talked amongst themselves. And then they also talked about, well, Mike also has control of his own body, just like you have control of your own body. And nobody can really tell you or dictate or touch you or move you um, in ways in which you don't want to be or you haven't expressed your consent. And they also talked about, like you mentioned um, earlier, about like touching people's hairs and, and bodies and, and being in the restroom and looking and pointing and all these other different things that were, that were coming up. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you were in that moment, do you remember where you felt in your body, like that sense of defensiveness or like where like your physical reaction might've been? Do you know that meme from Arthur with him clenching his fist? I guess I just told you the meme. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. The Arthur, the aardvark from the cartoon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which fun fact, they just uh, they just finished or wrapped it up. They were still going after all these years. Yeah, on the PBS, maybe months ago at the time of this recording. And yeah, they they did, um, where were they being like 10 year episodes? And it was, uh, oh, that was not what I was prepared to, to see growing <laughs> up. <laughs> but anyways, that's to say like, I felt it. Without even clenching my fists, right? I felt it in my extremities. And this is a practice in which we all need to just kind of, I, I think, go through and feel where do we tighten up in our bodies? Um, where do we do? Do we start to stutter? Do we like what's our physio reaction? What's our emotional reaction when we get challenged? Um, and really try to, to not just respond in the moment, but respond with curiosity, right? Not to let the fire <laughs> come out of our ears and really unpack what they're doing, right? Because that's that's what a dialogue is. Yeah, and you know, you're reminding me of um, what Dr. Amir Gilmore, uh, I love calling him Dr. Gilmore and stuff, even though we know him as Amir, but- um, You're the only one who calls him that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what he said, like, you're reminding me of how he says, like, we have this sense of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, holding children culpable, right? Like, in that moment of defensiveness, and when we get into these tough conversations with children, it could be easy to take that to the teachable moment could be something like, you don't talk to me like that. I can do what I want with my own body. You do not disrespect people or people who call themselves boys with long hair that is very disrespectful and then walk out. Right. And like, and it's like, you should know better not to do that kind of thing. And it's like, Whoa, Mm -hmm. like we, so, but what I hear you did and what we encourage people to do is take a step back and, and listen. Right. And like, maybe again, like this whole, every behavior has a need sort of saying maybe their need behind that behavior is like, Hey, why does Mike have long hair? That's interesting. I haven't seen somebody male presenting with long hair like that. And let alone, I haven't seen hair that looks like that. And so the only way I know how to express that is being like, Hey, you aren't supposed to have that because 
maybe the question is, I, I haven't seen that. Can you tell me more? Yeah. Right. And so I think that's where educators need to, um, and maybe that's the, to one of the, your previous questions, the role of the educator is to be also a detective and to look between the lines of what a child is saying and how they're acting of like, what's the question here? And what, how does that question serve a particular need to fill in a gap of information that they may or may not have? And so, um, yeah, it, it, and it, it becomes like where we sort of emotionally police and cognitively police the children of like, I am this grown up, I can be bigger, I can be louder than you. And that's how I'm going to get respect, you know, and that's not, that's not fair or okay. And I just think also that's where the, the beauty of provocations can come in, right? Um, provocations are, are things that we intentionally bring into our learning environment to engage children in, in the critical thinking that they'll need for this world. Um, the critical thinking, which is literally the foundation for life. And, and so the following day, I actually showed up to school in a dress. And this was just done intentionally to continue the conversation, to continue to complicate children's thinking on what people can and can't do, what they can wear and cannot wear. Yeah, you know, it's, you're reminding me, and this was a time before, um, before you came to Hilltop and I had long hair and I got the same sort of thing. Um, and, and, but it was interesting because kids, I mean, it took a good like year or year and a half for it to grow out, but kids got to see the process of it. And then they got to see like the sort of end result, but they're, uh, as I had a new batch of kids come in, they're like, Hey, you're not supposed to have long hair. Only boys have long hair or girls have long hair. And so I brought in actually a, a mullet wig that I had and that was, you know, party in the front or sorry, business in the front party in the back, the long side in the back. And, um, and kids like took turns wearing it and just being like, this is what it can feel like to have long hair or here's what it feels like to have a mullet. And, uh, and we brought in other wigs of just like, here's again, giving that, like filling in that um, little bit of information. Here's what it feels like. Like, does this change you from mm. what you identify as? Like, no, you might look differently, but, but how do you feel? Right. It's important about how you feel, not about how I think you are and how I think you feel. And so again, like we talked about in a previous podcast of like giving sort of exposure therapy, right? Like giving them that experience to be able to manipulate and control um, a question that they have with like a tangible thing. You know, and I, first of all, well, <laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa, I got really sad for a second because I remember your mullet days and I was like, wait, that was a wig? <laughs> oh no, I felt like I was lying to, but it's good to know that they it was real, all right. <laughs> um provocations provocations i'm trying to think what is oh right a book right i i i remember following that up with the book um we read two books one was uh annie wears a plaid shirt and the other one was called julian the mermaid which i think you showed me oh yeah and both of those books are awesome 
And I remember what anywhere's a plaid shirt, just for context, is that you know, I showed a girl who who liked to wear plaid shirts and and the other book, Julian the Mermaid, right? Julian who liked to wear a dress. And these were things that we introduced to help break up those harmful stereotypes children have internalized about others and really the boxes that we put people in. Um, and I think later on, we also introduced persona dolls, um, which were just overall a great way to discuss things, right? And we use those dolls specifically to introduce pronouns mm. into yeah. the environment. Into the learning environment, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, I like I like the idea of using those external um, things that personify issues that are going on in classrooms. Uh, persona dolls is one. I would usually use like the same toys that kids used in the classroom. So like two mm-hmm. two cars or a dinosaur in a car or the like, little finger puppet monsters and. Um, yeah. And just like talk about whatever the hot topic is and, um, and just have that conversation. And, and I think that's right. That's always our point is like normalize conversation. Mm. And like, because when we do that, then it's like what you said, we, we open up that critic, that door for critical theory, uh, thinking, what were do you, what do you think the, uh, the long lasting effects could be or are, with like your particular story and your um, provocations? Well, I mean, we first have to just acknowledge that there are a lot of different cultures, you know, in our classroom environments. And I know sometimes you don't think about it, especially if we're in a homogenous um, program where, oh, all of our children are white, right? They they do have culture as well, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something um, that I, I want to continue to to push people into thinking about the different ways in which that shows up, even if you're European, right? Um, so in, in our class, we had a lot of different cultures represented, you know, and cultures provide expectations for children. Um, and, and it's where, you know, children really get to learn about gender roles from, from their family and, and their cultural background, right? Uh, so gender norms, beliefs about activities, interests, uh, uh, behaviors associated with genders are not necessarily the same in each community. And um, obviously in our class community, we aim to honor all of the diversity of that. And we intentionally acknowledge that, well, boys are kind and gentle. You know, we acknowledge that girls are strong and and fearless and and they're leaders, right? We explore how non-binary people you know, I'm deserving of the basic human rights. It's mind-boggling that I even have to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these can seemingly be those tough conversations. But we believe and have seen that our children are more than capable of handling it. And we work with our children through these conversations and thoughts to build that empathy with people who are different from them. You don't got to love them, but you got to respect them. Mm-hmm. And, and after all, you know, they will eventually interact with someone who lives and looks differently than them. And it's just important for us to normalize this from the get-go. So 
that was fun, but not as fun, of course, as all the pushback, you know, some family gave. Um, and, and some families were pretty upset that we're exploring this topic with their three-year-old. Um, but that really can't deter us from our, our goals. If we're going to say we're a social justice organization, right, how are we actually going to back that up? Not just when it's convenient for us. So I can throw that back to you, I think, right? Uh, or maybe a different question, right? How would you invite and open up uh, that conversation with the caregivers about gender identity? Like a, a, a family who doesn't want their child to, to know or, or think it's age appropriate at three-year-olds to talk about the diversity of genders out there. Yeah, I would... You know, I would really bring it like bringing it back to um, I think for better or worse, a lot of families find validity in, pra in practice, any sort of practice, right? Whether it's in education or the medical field or engineering or whatever, when you can link it back to some direct research and especially for, for us in our field, there's um, an overwhelmingly great amount of uh brain science right that like is backing a lot of what we're saying and the importance of social justice approaches and um but without you know because a lot of times when we are taking this when we are leading our conversations and our practices through social justice lens and we get pushback i always say that it can feel like fighting fire with gasoline kind of thing and we end up just and no one gets anywhere with that. Um, but what we can do is bringing back, again, linking it to some research and brain science, like if we know that uh, between three and nine months, children are already like picking up on race, um, they're able to discriminate particular race and show um, show favorite for favoritism for racial racial features that are that are theirs. If we know that, that like a preverbal little blob of a human being is picking up on these things, then the capacity for a three-year-old to talk about or uh, and experience different genders is, um, that's also a, a very real reality and um, something that they're, are, that they're capable of, right? This is something that's in their wheelhouse. It's something that they want to know about. Um, it's something that they're observing. And so how are we making sure we're giving them the right uh, components to, to be with that, to, to figure out, um, to, to have that capacity for acceptance and empathy. And so I would also like link it back to what we know developmentally, like children at this age, they're figuring out what their identity is, who they are, how they fit into this world. They're unblurring their sense of egocentricism. So if we can help them unblur that, we can help them expand their capacities of empathy. Um, and again, they're like uh, their their capacities for acceptance. And they also want to know how what that means to other people in the world that they experience with. You and I have both mentioned it. Like kids are going, human beings are going to experience other human beings unless they voluntarily 
decide not to, right? And, and remain isolated into their own solitude or their own siloed communities. And, but is, at what detriment does that hold? You know, and, and, and if we wanna have productive citizens, then we need to make sure we're being productive in our practices and our approaches that better prepare them for other citizens. And I think it's important also to note that, you know, as we give our thoughts, it's not something that you can replicate, right? This isn't a copy and paste type of type of thing. All we're trying to do is, is provide that framework, that, that critical lens for you to apply it into your own settings, into your own lives. Mm-hmm. And, and what you just did is gave me a good framework for me to work in next time I, you know, I approach that situation, you know, and I, and I do want to say on the flip side of that is that we did receive a lot of just like positive feedback from it. And one that I got that, that I'll kind of always remember was, was pretty heartwarming for me. You know, I, I think one family came up to me. I don't think I know, right. One family came up to me at drop off and really thanked me for engaging in this conversation. They disclosed that their child was just super worried about coming into school with pigtails as they have sort of longish hair. And they were afraid um, the other boys in the class would make fun of him. But to know that, you know, oh, Mike, you're having these conversations and and you're making a place where they can explore without shame just kind of reaffirms so many things for us as a family and for him. And, you know, I'm, I'm just super grateful that this is a place that I can send my child to. This is a community in which our lifestyle will be respected, will be accepted. Um, this, is, this is a classroom where, you know, we can have the, the, the awkward conversations. And so she said all that. And then she also mentioned like, oh, on our drive to school, right? He was like, mom, can we go dress shopping? And, you know, it was because I wore the dress and like he came home and he he wanted to be like you, right? What was that commercial said? Everyone want to be like Mike? Um, (laughs) I want to be like Mike. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, she just ended it with saying, you know, thanks for for loving our children for who they are. And like I said, that was really special for me to hear because, you know, we're letting children be themselves. Um, the child wanted to wear pigtails, but society has already shamed them, you know, and he's only three. It's wild. So him being, him seeing me be comfortable with who I am, um, even though it was a provocation, like I don't normally typically wear dresses, right? It, it really just gave him the confidence for him to be who he is. And I feel like that's the purpose of our work. You know, that's why we are working with young children, you know, really giving them a space to be who they are to affirm them. You know, you're, you're reminding me that like, we can do this all for a year or two in a child's life, maybe three, if they're lucky to stick around at the preschool or early childhood setting. But beyond that, once they leave that sort of space, that's going to create that courageous space, then we have to make sure we're doing just as much of a job to empower the families and caregivers and guardians to like continue that affirmation in children. Right. Because I recently um, 
one of our our native children he uh he had he had long hair the whole time that i've known him but he's going on to kindergarten like after daybreak after this native organization where long hair is like a sense of strength and identity and wisdom for uh for native especially for native uh male identifying people and the parents were like we're on the fence of like, we want him to go because he's for the lack of a better way of putting it. He's a very pretty child. Like mm-hmm. not like, you know, um, he's kind of like me, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where, where maybe if like, you don't know the child's name or anything, you might, your brain might accidentally be like, Oh, that's a girl. Right. And, and mm-hmm. identify them as such. But so his parents were like, worried that their their son was going to um uh, be be ridiculed in public school and so you know they they chopped off his hair and like and so they made that sort of cultural sacrifice for him to more or less like assimilate in even though he has so many other features that are going to maybe set him apart from the school community that he's in but at least they can eliminate one other factor that might bring shame or whatever. And so it's, you know, we have to make sure that we're encouraging families to carry that torch, right. Of openness and and affirmation to their child. We have to make sure that they also feel not only does the child feel equipped and supported, but the families and caregivers and guardians do too. Um, And that's what, you know, if, like we can only do so much for the few years that we have children. Yeah. What's our legacy? What's our lasting effect? Yeah. So I'm curious. If we if you were in my spot situation, would you have done anything differently? Remember I showed you the people's elbow? Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. No. That um, well. <laughs> I know. Um No, you know, I mean well, I mean I I think it would it this sort of moment would make it would inspire me to to make sure that representation is ongoing, right? Um cuz we can do these one-offs and like again uh, have a teachable moment and experience but how are we going to make sure that that's again, like you said just now, like going to be the legacy of that classroom, yeah, the legacy of that pedagogy and that practice, and so it could be something as of having like a book of like um, like Maori warriors, right, with long hair and wearing um, their their traditional wraps. I don't know the name of it, or even. Uh, Celtic men wearing uh, kilts and uh, or is that more Scottish sorry if I butchered that but men in kilts and and what that meaning is behind and and long hair and and really having stories and learning about like what does long hair mean in different cultures and and really giving making sure that we're providing these counter narratives like all the time and because there is a value in being emergent about it but there's also um, a value in having it like already represented. So that way it supports those emergent moments. Um, but we, you know, 
I know it border borders line on sort of the tourist approach, but we have to, there, there are like fine tuned ways to make sure that we're uh, being consistent in that. You know, as soon as you said that, my first thought went to um, the African female warriors, right? Um, the Asantawa, I think that's how you pronounce it, which were just badass women who who were the ones who, you know, were on the, the front lines fighting whenever people invaded their their um their their you know their country and their and their civilizations right i think about the amazon amazonian women right mm-hmm. so all these different things in which how are we also showing a different way that hey you can still be a woman right or femme identifying and you still be shown in this light right it's not just michelle obama yeah yeah, it, I, and I, a lot of the times, I think with all of our episodes that we've we've always hinted at, like making sure that we're we've either blatantly said it or hinted at making sure we're um, providing a counter narrative to children, mm-hmm. and that we're not just always supporting and living the dominant narrative. So I I, I kind of want to end this conversation right i already know the answer right but i think it's important for us to also say it so just think about my background coming from a you know being afro-caribbean i can hear people from my culture saying oh that's so gay right like why would you do that so i'll end with this question to you are we making our children quote-unquote gay by talking about gender identity and gender expression that's yeah i mean that's always like you know yeah oh are we making them anything else when we talk about anything else Mm. you know like it no we're not we're not making anybody anything um i i have feeling behind it but it's hard for me to put like some eloquent words without coming off like uh really rude <laughs> towards a particular narrative but it you know it's the same thing that when we hear of like are are we making children racist mm. you know i mean are we going to make a child poor if we talk about poverty mm. are we going to make a child a school shooter if we're talking about guns no there's like and and i'm not saying that those things are related to someone's sexual orientation but the you know the point is like because we have conversations are we making them something no if anything what we're doing is we're affirming their own identity whatever that identity is right and um i can't remember as an exact age according to you know developmental research and stuff like that but like sexuality and sexual preferences don't really come in until later on and as we and as also brain science has shown that there is no like gay gene so it's not something that's like passed on Mm. it's we're not making we're not even giving uh i don't feel like we're giving kids the idea of like um 
I want, I'm, yeah, obviously I'm choosing my words wisely because I don't want to, because this is like, you know, something to be very tactful around. Yeah. Um, but no, <laughs> is my overall <laughs> answer. If anything, we're, we're saying that gender identity and gender expression is something to be explored, something that should be open. It's something that isn't black and white. It's something for us to just, if anything, be curious about, like, um, and to really like to honor the different ways that someone wants to express themselves. Um, cause we all, you know, identity isn't just one thing. There's multifaceted things of, of, to someone's identity and gender expression and identity is, um, just like one slice of the pie. And so I think we're just, I believe that we're, we're telling children it's okay to to get to know different identities and expressions absolutely gender is a spectrum right so it doesn't really matter what with your clothing or your hairstyle or, or your social behaviors or your social relationships um including the genders of your friend uh friends are or or the nonverbal actions in which we engage in we're just trying to be human y'all mm-hmm and, and or I was just going to say, it's also reminding me of something I've heard Ibram X. Kendi um, talk about in, a, in an interview recently where he, where they're like, they're like, do you think that your anti, how to be an anti-racist book is making children racist? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, no, but what it's telling me is that, um, that those families around children, they do recognize race. And that they understand that their children also recognize race, that there is. The, he, so I liked his way of viewing it in an optimistic sense. It's just unfortunate that they are taking it in this other direction. And that that also they recognize that um, that particular people of color have been oppressed by their race. And so or maybe in denial of it. And, and so I would also apply that to, to your question about, are we making children gay or about gender identity expression? It's like, no, I think that they, ha- adults have their own reconciliation to come with, come to with that, but they also recognize that and acknowledge that there are different identities and expressions. Yeah. And I was just having a conversation with Ashley, my fiance yesterday about I don't like the word, I don't like the phraseology of people being like, I don't believe in trans people. Like, you don't believe they exist because they do. I was marching with them last week. <laughs> yeah, why not just say you don't, you, you don't agree with it? Because you saying I don't believe in it isn't going to make them just poof and go away, right? Uh-huh. They're not Santa Claus. These are real people. Mm-hmm. You can say I don't believe in Santa Claus because that's something that is made up or doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Right. Allegedly. What? Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's I don't know. I I was just thinking about that recently. I agree. Gender development is a normal process mm-hmm. for all children, right? And so if we how- and if we've seen it historically in other cultures, then it's like it's something about our in our human makeup mm-hmm. in there. So that was a lot for people to chew on. Um, but I wonder, <laughs> do you have anything you 
you know, want to share maybe a reflection question? I know I got one. I can, you know, send this out if, if you're feeling pretty tapped out. No, I mean, I feel like I'm um, on the verge of like ranting. So yeah, you go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> All right, I'll take us out. So, you know, there's there's absolutely necessary work that we all um, must do to create a more curious, to, to create a more creative world. How are we encouraging that in our opportunities, right? How are we encouraging opportunities to explore art, poetry, theater, fashion, drama, um, funds of knowledge that really centers the the contribution? And I'm and I'm going to single out um, the trans community, right? Because we see a lot of targeted um, legislation and and hate towards that group, um, and not just in the states that we historically think of, but it's also happening in our own backyard. And so how are we encouraging and exploring those opportunities in our communities to center the trans community, the, the, the queer community, et cetera, right? And, and I think we don't need to have to wait to Pride Month to do this, y'all, mm -hmm. right? Or when the new episode of, of Pose drop or, you know, whatever. So how can we work with our children to really resist the rigid categories of what they should, quotation mark, be that the society places upon us? So I just want to leave us with that. And also an invitation to, once again, send us your thoughts or comments. What's coming up for you? To our new email napcast206 at gmail.com. Until, until next time, whenever we record next, <laughs> um, take care of yourself, heal, rest, and make sure you love one another. Yep, take care, everyone.